our American stories, and we love to tell all sorts of stories on our show about music, business, history. But we especially love sharing stories that help us develop lasting, healthy relationships from the start. And one of our favorite guests is a medical doctor in North Carolina who does much, much more than treat symptoms. Her her patients affectionately call her Dr. Rose, and we're so glad she's here to share some of her experience. Dr. Rosemary Fernandez-Stein has been been a practicing pediatrician for 23 years and director of her own practice, the International Family Clinic in Burlington, North Carolina, for the past 16. They provide the best medical care and guidance to underserved families, and they now care for 5,000 children. She is also the author of Who Needs a Village? It's a Mom Thing, a book about how modern parenting fails to equip children with the necessary confidence and skills and how parents, especially moms, can change all of that. And Dr. Rose, thanks for joining us again. I was so happy to be here and share these stories. Thank you for having me. You bet. And we've been talking about a pretty simple notion that sometimes many of the young people's problems that you're treating stem not from medical conditions, but from not too great parenting, not exactly the best parenting, let's be charitable. And what you learned was that it was the parents who needed the coaching so that the kids could learn their way out of what some people thought were either pathologies or something worse. So let's talk today about Christopher, and let's talk about Christopher's mom. Talk about this particular case, Dr. Rose. Oh, wonderful. Well, Christopher is actually a dear employee's child, uh, and he uh, was brought to the clinic uh, before his mom became one of our employees uh, as a newborn. And soon after, uh, he became a, a, let's say, a toddler, an older infant. We realized that Christopher didn't do a lot of uh, eye gazing. He, He wouldn't look at people's eyes and and respond to being held and, and looked at uh, the same way that other young infants do. Uh, so that, that um, made us uh, a little bit cautious about him. And the other thing that we noticed soon after that was that he did not have a grasp of words uh, and didn't have the same kinds of words like mama and dada that uh, some other children, uh, that other children at his age did. And in fact, he preferred some inanimate objects, uh, like his train or his car, and would play uh, with those objects instead of gazing in mom's face and saying "mama" or "dada." Uh, so we we uh, began to uh, put some more emphasis on mom uh, as to what we uh, needed to do, so that he would have uh, those kinds of uh, of normal behaviors. Uh, on top of what he was already doing. Uh, One of our doctors very lovingly referred Christopher uh, to a a special developmental clinic. And when he was referred, and he was only um, uh, between one and two years of age, when he was referred, he was diagnosed with autism. And, of course, uh, Christopher, what I'm describing to you, is a a young child uh, that has uh, uh, autistic uh, signs and symptoms. Uh, so he was diagnosed with autism, and uh, then he had a whole uh, a crew of uh, a, like a team, uh, a, a teamwork of of uh, uh, medical uh, personnel 
that were helping him and helping mom uh, with uh, this this diagnosis of, of autism. And so what I noticed about Christopher uh, during this time that he was mainly being seen, seen for his uh, autistic uh, uh, symptoms and signs uh, was that he was, in fact, sort of regressing some uh, because there was so much emphasis on this medical diagnosis that perhaps the attention to his development was not, not, was not occurring. So I brought him in to see me and, and, and talked with his, his mom, and we had a very long conversation. So she was taking him to all of his appointments uh, but wasn't spending the time uh, with him, uh, gazing into his eyes, making sure that he understood to look back, uh, to speak with him, uh, to expect a response back when she when she spoke with him, uh, and uh, to read to him and have him uh, repeat what perhaps what she was reading and, and follow directions and all that. So little by little, uh, Christopher started to mature and started to grow out of some of those more autistic traits. But it was clear that she had a very different boy. He uh, does not need the special touches that other children need. He uh, entertains himself with his thoughts. He, uh, he will uh, play with things that are inanimate and will, will really uh, build things and work with his hands. Uh, and he will answer questions with a yes or a no, very stoic boy. Uh, so that as he, he grew and continued to go to all of these uh, different uh, specialists, uh, Juana, uh, his, his mom, said, well, I'm not sure about his diagnosis anymore, uh, Dr. Rose, because he seems to be doing very well uh, by himself, and he seems to be doing very well in school. And I said, how's that? And she said, well, he's in first grade, and this was a few years back, but he's reading at a third grade level, and he uh, does his math really well. In fact, he doesn't need any fingers or anything to count. He does all his math in his head. Uh, and he understands things just by looking at them. Uh, so I said, "Well, what really is the what? What are you know the the, the subspecialists saying about him? Well, it's still saying that he's he's autistic and he needs all these things, uh, but we don't seem to be improving in in those uh, those areas or characteristics uh, that he's you know been diagnosed with." And let's hold that thought right there, Doctor Rose. Because so often we find, especially with some of the families at risk, that all these experts come in and then we do things according to their diagnoses. And sometimes those diagnoses are wrong and there are simple answers to more complicated problems. Sometimes there are not, but sometimes there are. And this is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. Dr. Rose and Christopher. The story of Christopher continues after these messages.
is Our American Stories, and we continue with Dr. Rose. And we're talking about this young boy, Christopher, and his mom, Juana, and a diagnosis of autism that the mom is beginning to wonder, just wonder if that diagnosis is wrong. And mom's instincts are pretty powerful. But experts' diagnoses are perhaps even more powerful. And Dr. Rose, before we continue the story, that mom's intuition versus the doctor's diagnosis, how often do they come in collision for pretty good reason? Well, and that's what's so interesting is because she wasn't giving, given uh, perhaps the opportunity to, uh, to bring up that she did have some doubts and that she had some questions, perhaps moms, uh, their intuition is not known as frequently as they're actually occurring. Uh, with with uh, Juana and Christopher, now she she and I have a very good relationship, and I would ask her uh, frequently because she knows that that I am in tune to what moms have to really tell me. So because of that, she felt more at ease with telling me that she would like a little bit more information about and and more uh, of more depth into that diagnosis that was already given to, to Christopher. And I'm not saying that he's not doesn't have autistic features or maybe people would consider him uh, uh, autistic per se. Right. What I'm saying is that if when we give the moms the ability to ask the questions, to, to interject what they see is going on with their children, then we open doors uh, to be able to help uh, work through some of, of those symptoms and those signs so that the condition itself is lessened and the child's potential and outcome is improved. And that's exactly what happened with with, with uh, Christopher. Now, at, during the time that Christopher was about six or seven and, and, and that he was actually reading and doing other things very well, there was a very tumultuous situation going on in their home, in, in, in this boy's home, uh, the parents were being, getting separated. There were just a lot of uh, psychological and, and, and emotional issues in Christopher's life. So we noticed that at that time, he stopped talking again. And so, you know, the, the, the neurologists and the developmentalists, um, the developmental specialists, referred him to more speech therapy. And I'm thinking, <laughs> well... That's not necessarily what he needs. He he probably is is being very quiet because he's reflecting on what's going on in his house. Giving giving Christopher speech therapy is not going to be productive. I don't know that it would be counterproductive, but it certainly won't necessarily be productive. So I said, um, Juana, instead of 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 uh, going to every single speech therapy and, and and having him sit excruciatingly for an hour and, and developing his uh, sounds and 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 repeating uh, all of these different words why don't you work on spending an extra 15 to 20 minutes uh, on him at night and telling him that everything's going to be okay and and even when mom and dad aren't together that that you're going to take care of him and dad's going to take care of him and that you love him so much and that you will protect him and be there for him no matter what let's see if that helps him break through and so mom, of course, she lovingly did that, spent that much time every day with him one-on-one. 
and he started speaking more and smiling more and being a little more of a cheery guy. Well, let's, let's uh, break forward to today. Uh, Christopher can read a book, a chapter book, in less than an hour. He is an avid reader uh, who uh, can repeat the stories, and his description of what he reads and how he understands it is very elaborate. He works very well with his hands. He's, uh, he's in fifth grade and reading, reading three years above grade level, but is also very, very smart, able to describe things very well. Uh, but he is not an emotional boy. He's a stoic boy. So a lot of what the things that we were interpreting as autism is a different uh, sort of characteristic or personality. He's, he's a, a different kind of boy. He's not an emotional boy. He keeps his emotions inside. Uh, and he's a charming young man who, who holds responsibilities very dearly uh, and takes care of, of uh, his, his mom to an extent and his three younger brothers uh, because mom has since then remarried and is, is very happy. I mean, it's just that sometimes we go down these rabbit holes and we keep ourselves there, and instead of developing those those characteristics and helping children through uh, some of the uh, of the traits that are not so helpful to them, we keep them in, in a developmental phase that that is not congruent to their maturity. So. Christopher is now doing so well, and he's a happy young man, and, and he's got so much hope and future, and he tells me that he'd like to be an author and, and, and write books himself. And what a, what a change. And again, the diagnosis hasn't necessarily changed, Dr. Rose, but in the end, the way the mom interacts with the child has changed dramatically in, in your estimation and with your help, I assume. Yes, and, and she has a very loving but authoritative relationship with him, and he, in, in turn, is very comfortable in his role as, as a son and also as the older brother that, that, that looks over what his brothers are doing. And is, like I said, he's very responsible and has self-confidence because he knows that he's able to do certain things very, very well. And coaching the parent, you know, as you're doing this, Dr. Rose, this has to be dicey territory. Um, obviously, a parent wants to feel like these are their decisions, and yet what parent doesn't secretly yearn for and hope for some kind of outside guidance? Because in the end, we're all sort of lost out there and wondering what might work better than what we're doing, and yet as parents sometimes we're afraid to both assert ourselves in some situations and raise our hand and say, I don't know, in others, and help me. Uh, talk about that and how you navigate that such utterly private space. Oh, that's, and those are great questions, and, the, and, and parents really struggle with that a lot. But parents, if, if with your doctor, you're not sure about things, it's, it, like I said, it's very important for you to assert it, and not in an angry kind of way, but, but really give the doctor some background, uh, and uh, help that parent through that. And for myself, uh, I make sure that I I sit back and I listen. Listening helps me to understand the situation that has led for this child to be acting in a a certain way or not being able to learn something uh, at, at school. 
it's it's really all in, in the listening, and that's what it really comes down to. If I'm I'm able to stop and not interrupt and listen for a few extra minutes, jot something down, and then give it some thought. Sometimes I'll tell a mom, look, i got to put these things together. If I can figure a different thing out, I will give you a call later on this week because I want to think this through. I want to be able to process this right and give you a an answer that's not just out of a book or uh, just, you know, just comes to my mind at that moment. I, I really want to give your child's situation some thought and be able to be a, a, an adjunct, a, a something that adds to the improvement of your child. And I, I think that that's that's what sometimes as experts we jump to the diagnosis before really considering what might be causing this child's problem. I think that's a big part of this actually, Dr. Rose, is not enough folks really listen. I don't care if it's doctors. I don't care. Hey, look, you just saw uh, remarkable things happen in, in elections and all kinds of things where folks aren't necessarily listening and then they're suddenly surprised at outcomes. And uh, listening can change a lot of things. I might add, Dr. Rose, that what I've heard from so many of my doctor friends whom I've listened to ad nauseum about some of the problems in their practices, they have no time to listen. They have no time because of the paperwork and the various uh, dimensions of their practice that crowd into their lives. And maybe we get into that in the next interview. But I really appreciate all that you do and for taking the time with us. And I'm sure that both Juana and and Christopher, I uh, deeply appreciate your efforts, too. And this is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. Dr. Rose, she's a doctor, and she works with all kinds of kids, many of them at risk in North Carolina. But in the end, what she does a lot of the time is coach parents. Because so many of the problems, well, so many of them aren't just medical, and some aren't even medical at all. Again, this is Our American Stories. Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org to capture and listen to all that we do. Stories, and we're fortunate to be joined by Arthur Brooks, the president of the American Enterprise Institute. And I know you're wondering about this bumpin' music. Uh, it's not our ordinary bumpin' music, but it's, uh, well, why should we explain? Uh, this is how Arthur Brooks let off a recent column in the New York Times about mobility and about, in the end, I think, freedom and the human heart. Uh, Arthur, a pleasure to have you on our show. Hey, Lee, how are you? It's great to talk to you. Same here. Now, Arthur, that song, everybody's listening to it. Tell people about what they were just listening to. Well, that's a song about the open road, isn't it? It's a song about uh, adventure and uh, the way your life's supposed to be. You know, it's a, it's a crazy thing. You know, when you look back and how people talked uh, as recently as 100 years ago, even less, 
about the American spirit. And if you look back and uh, no doubt in how your own ancestors talked about the adventure in their lives, and I was talked about doing new things and going new places and, and looking for the opportunity in their lives. You know, I, I look back over the past couple hundred years in my own family, and, you know, they moved every generation west, you know, one step ahead of the law or looking for a new job or something. Yep. And, you know, it was the open road is the sense of rebuilding your life on the basis of opportunity and adventure. And you know, that's what, it's a funny song. It's the funniest bump in music I've heard in a long time. But, man, it kind of captures it, doesn't it? It does. And, you know, when you think about this mobility, I mean, in the end, people moved here from far away to begin with. So, I mean, in the end, in the, end the beginning of every American life started with moving to begin with. Yeah, for sure. Look, I mean, it's, uh, I, I'm going to go, I'm going to say, you're, I mean, you're Lebanese, right? Yep. And you're, you're grand, probably your granddad or maybe your dad. My granddad. My granddad. Yeah. Yep. And, you know, fantastic. There's so many good people. This is a country of, and, and interesting to, to think about it this way, you know, no, nobody came here rich. I'm, I'm going to say that your grandfather wasn't a rich guy. <laughs> you're right. He probably like my great-grandparents, basically ambitious riffraff. That's who we are yep. as a country, right? And, you know, some, some listeners are going, well, actually, my family wasn't ambitious. <laughs> you <know? laughs> but, you know, this is, the country is not made up of dukes and earls and nobility and gentry. No, it's made up of people who basically came from someplace else where they couldn't make it and said, I'm gonna, my life is a startup. I'm going to be an entrepreneur with my own life, basically. You know, that's the American spirit. That's what we need. Dig into your grandfather's life, because I love asking people about their parents and their parents' parents. Uh, it's just, it's almost how I start every interview. I also ask people about their first job as well, Arthur. But tell me about your granddad and where he grew up and where he moved around. My grandparents uh, were from South Dakota, and their, their parents were immigrants from Denmark. Uh, and, you know, recently I was making a movie in Denmark, and, you know, part of the reason I went there is it was a movie about happiness. And, 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 I, and I went to the place where my great-grandparents immigrated away from, and, and I wanted to know. I mean, everybody says the Danish people are the happiest people in the world. So why would my great-grandparents leave? And the answer is because they wanted more than they could get from that culture. They wanted to. They left because they had a first-grade education, and they were the wrong religion, and they were poor, and they were orphans. And I said, huh, I've heard about this place called America, South Dakota. I bet we could start our own farm. And they did. They went to South Dakota. They, were, they had nothing. They had 12 kids. They wound up, uh, you know, they, first grade education. Their kids graduated from high school. Their grandkids went to college. And great-grandkid is president of the American Enterprise Institute. It's crazy. It's, it is indeed crazy. And, you know, that song we talked about was Walt Whitman's Song of the, of the Open Road. And, Arthur, in this column you wrote, and I'm going to quote, I inherited my grandfather's wanderlust, albeit in a strain that's more Kuriak than Whitman. Who's Jack Kuriak, for folks who don't know? And tell us about your wanderlust. Well, Jack Kuriak was writing in the 1960s, and he was, uh, he's kind of a beat writer. Um, and he's not very popular among conservatives like me, simply because he was so uh, in part of the drug culture, etc. But the thing that's attractive about him is that he was going from place to place talking about new adventures in his own life. Walt Whitman did the same thing 100 years before, a lot more, with a lot better values, I have to say. And, you know, this has been the kind of the soundtrack of American life forever. You asked about that grandfather. That was actually on the other side. This is a guy who, you know, he, he his family had been in the United States for a couple hundred years, 
years at this point. But, you know, he always had this itch. So he started off, uh, he decided he was going to start a, a missionary school in the Navajo Nation in New Mexico. Started the Methodist Mission School, and then picked up and went to Wheaton College, where he wound up being the dean of students. And then he was, you know, gave up everything and just traveled around the United States with a trailer uh, as, a, as a traveling missionary, uh, effectively. And, you know, that's really the American spirit. It's really good stuff. It is Jack Kerouac or Walt Whitman, but all in the, the Christian mood. It's good stuff. It is. And, you know, we just did an hour on Henry Ford, and it's particularly the early part of his life struck us because he just hated the farming life. His father insisted he stay on the farm. Henry had other ideas. And, indeed, a large part of it, it turns out, why he did what he did is he wanted more people to be able to escape the farm. And what more represents that ability to, to escape uh, a life that you once knew than the car itself, Arthur? Oh, yeah, 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 that's absolutely right. You know, when people are, it's funny, I talk to people all the time who are regretting cars, regretting fossil fuels, you know, people who talk about the oil industry who are somehow evil, man, they, these guys, they produce liquid freedom. I know. You know nobody can, can, can basically say, I'm sorry you live in Oklahoma, you can go to Texas. No, 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 gas up your car and go. You know, there's a lot of good things, by the way, that the country did, even the government did, building the interstate highway system. Why was that? To make people more free. The job of the government should always be not to make people less free, but to make people more free. And that was a good example of how we were actually able to do it. And this is true, but it actually requires something else, Lee. It requires a culture and a mentality and a morality written on the heart of the American to want to do this. You know, this is really what kind of worries me, what I've been writing about lately, is we can celebrate the open road. We can celebrate my granddad with his trailer and, and Walt Whitman and the stuff that we're talking about here. But if we don't have Americans who really want to avail themselves of this kind of freedom, who say things are not right, I can't find a job. I'm going to go in search of my earned success. If we don't have Americans who are willing to do that, then it really doesn't matter how much freedom there is, is it? Doesn't no, it? it's so true. We talked to a young girl earlier, Arthur, named Jane Johnson, and she's a young girl in, uh, from the west side of Chicago, has a tough life, tough neighborhood, uh, but she went ahead and got herself a technical degree, and the day she graduated, a guy who owned a machine shop saw something in this girl and said, hey, I want to hire you. And he always does this, by the way. He goes to that graduation ceremony and picks at least one or two kids from the tough side of the tracks and gives them jobs. He has 80 employees now, and he employs a bunch of those people 20 years after having started this ritual. I asked Jane, have you told some of your friends in the West Side about this program, which, by the way, is free. It's pro bono through a church. And she said, I can't get any takers, but that's not going to stop me. And so it gets to your point, Arthur, right there in the neighborhood. They don't even have to move. They just have to walk a few blocks. And yet there's something mapped on their human heart. And I think it has a lot to do with the government programs that tells them not to make that move for themselves. Yeah. You know, it actually has been very tough. Uh, Let's make no mistake about it. Over the past few decades, and and particularly since the end of the Great Recession, there, there is less opportunity out there than there was before. But if you go back 100 years, there were times of a real lack of opportunity, and, and there was nothing that people could do except pick up and move if they actually needed to find some way to support themselves and support their families. Now, I want, given the fact that the country is much richer, to be able to help people so they don't fall too far, but I don't want to ruin this. I don't want to ruin this American spirit. I want people to 
to get up and move. I'm trying to find some sort of happy medium here, Lee. And, and you know, I, I'm looking around today, and, and I see some things I don't like. You know, if, if you look at the, the percentage of men um, age 20 to 64, which is working age, who are not institutionalized, meaning they're not in prison and they're not in the military, the percentage of those guys that are idle, not even in the workforce, has gone from 7% when you and I were kids, Lee, to 17% today. Basically, it's, you know, we're talking doubling and tripling the number of guys, you know, practically one in five men in America today is sitting out, the wor- sitting out of the workforce, and we can't sustain that. That really changes our country. No, it does, and it changes our culture as well. And again, it changes the hearts of these men and women who sit out. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. And when we come back, Arthur Brooks, president of the American Enterprise Institute, writing about an important subject on this show, mobility. And in the end, freedom. More after these messages. And this is Our American Stories, and we're joined by Arthur Brooks, president of the American Enterprise Institute. His column in the New York Times, How to Get America Moving Again, uh, represented a, a story and a continuing story that Arthur and his team over there are telling again and again. And we want to join him in, in pursuing that storytelling. Arthur, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Lee. Wonderful to be with you and, and all your listeners. And thank you for your wonderful show. I mean, what a breath of fresh air in America today. I mean, you're not complaining. You're talking about solutions. You're celebrating what a great country this is. You remind us all that America is a gift to the world, and each one of us can be a gift to our nation. You're really doing a blessing here. Well, I appreciate it. You know, Arthur, the other day we were celebrating uh, Frank Capper's life, and I I called up the American Film Institute. A friend of mine who uh, works there had said Capper gave a remarkable speech in 1981 when he was given this Lifetime Achievement Award. Bob Hope's in the front row. Betty Davis is in the front room and in the front of the room, and he starts to tell the story of his grandfather and his father and coming to the United States and pointing at the Statue of Liberty and what it meant to him and getting to Los Angeles and his father literally kissing the ground. And then he holds up the award to heaven. He's named all of the dead relatives in Italian. And then he says, for you, for coming here, for coming to America, I kiss the ground. And, wow. and, and, and I, I just think there, not enough of us have that space of gratitude, Arthur, in our hearts and in our lives right now. It's true. It's true. And, and look, I'm, I'm, I'm very sympathetic to the people who don't feel that the opportunity is as abundant as it used to be. And, you know, I go to communities all the time in my work. I mean, I'm traveling constantly in places that are actually pretty hard up. Um, but as, as a country, we have to be real warriors for opportunity and the opportunity culture. But let's still remember, let's still let's maintain the gratitude for, for what this country has represented for each of us and, and what it can be in the future. And let's fight together to find these solutions. You bet. And a lot of what we talk about here on this show when it comes to mobility are the things holding people back. So let's talk about our lack of mobility uh, as it relates to our, ec- our economic funk and public policy, Arthur. Talk about the connection and the nexus between these things. Well, 
people often wonder uh, about mobility, and, and when, when we talk about mobility, we're usually talking about socioeconomic mobility, climbing, your kids doing better than you, you doing better this year than last year. But what really one of the things that's interesting to note is geographic mobility, moving around, which is kind of, a, this is the theme that we've been talking about over the last few minutes here. And, and here's a weird fact, Lee. People are less geographically mobile than they've ever been in American life. So if you go back to about 1960, you find that one in five families moved in any given year in your neighborhood. So you found that people always moved in and moved out, moved in and moved out. Mobility, moving from state to state, families, that's been cut by 50% since you and I were kids. People are half as likely to move now as they were since the early 60s. Now, why? You know, what would lead to this? And there are a whole bunch of explanations for it. Number one is that you know, people who get assistance from the state, it's not geographically portable. So, you know, if you're getting food stamps one place, it's hard to sign up in, in a new jurisdiction. If you're getting state benefits in one place, you don't get them in another place, so people stay there. Another is that people just don't have skills that are very portable anymore. <clears throat> when I was a kid, a lot more people had blue-collar skills than they have today. And so there are tons of blue-collar jobs that are unfilled because they can't find people with those skills and really high rates of unemployment for people who who don't have these skills anymore. Today, just very day, there are 300,000 unfilled skilled welding jobs in America. This is the same time that you find African-American unemployment among men under 30 is over 30%. You know, what's wrong here where people of the skills and abilities are not matching each other and this is keeping people stuck both socioeconomically and even geographically. You know, we were talking about two months ago to a young man named Anthony Solis, whose picture was on the cover of the personal journal holding a welding torch. And I said, get that guy on the air. And he talked about this very thing, Arthur. And if it hadn't been for a, a day he was trying to cheat from high school and go to this shipyard to watch guys do what they were doing. And he, all he said to me is, the second I saw those guys playing with fire, I knew that's what I wanted to do the rest of my life. And he can write his ticket, Arthur. I mean, he has mobility now. He had job offers from several places. It gets right to your point. And Anthony Solis, second-generation immigrant from Mexico, came from a tough barrio in a tough neighborhood, could never afford college, and he's making $90,000 a year, Arthur. And it's not the money. It's what it represents for this young guy. And it's his ability to do what he wants to do with his life. Absolutely. And, and a guy who's got these skills, which are super in demand today, um, he's going to move to find the best paying job. He's going to move his family when it's re- it required. You can't stay in your local community if you want to work on an oil pipeline, if you want to weld on an oil pipeline. And that's what gets people up and that's what gets, pe- gets people moving is because somebody says, I need you here. And, you know, this gets to a broader point. In the American economy today, the problem that we have, you can say it's, you know, you see people complaining about immigrants and you see people complaining about trade and all that stuff. The real problem is that too many people in America don't feel that they're necessary anymore. They don't feel they're needed. Your friend Anthony Solis, he went from being basically not needed by the economy to being needed by the economy. That's right. We got to be neededly. Each one of us needs to be needed. And, and our welfare policy has been just crazy. We've gone from needing people when my parents were kids to helping people. And look, I want to help people. I'm a Christian. I want to help people all day long. But you know what? I don't help people when I make them unnecessary. And that's effectively what's happened. There's a really weird fact. There's only one group of poor people in America today that we don't help, but that we do need. And that's illegal immigrants. 
who are doing work in things like agriculture. We should learn something from that. These are people that they don't have the best life, and we need to regularize them. And it's not right that we have this illegal immigration problem, but let's take a lesson. These are people that we're not helping, but that we do need. What can we do for legal immigrants? What can we do for people who are poor? What can we do to need them more and so we can support them and make them dependent less? You know, Arthur, we just uh, spent an hour on Alexander Solzhenitsyn's remarkable speech at Harvard in 1978. And, you know, he, he was, I think, uh, well, I think everyone was expecting for him some speech about the perils of communism and socialism. But he also talked about the perils of capitalism in this speech, which is what made it so interesting. And he talked about materialism itself and the problems of materialism. And I think too often people who believe in free enterprise don't get at that discussion and don't talk directly to the people about things like how to be needed and, and what to do about that. And we don't start with that individual story, Arthur. It seems to me we're always starting from some macroeconomic position. Uh, talk about that, if you could. Well, you know, it's, it's important for all of us who are free enterprise advocates. I'm, I'm a political conservative. I have been for a long time, and, and I love the free enterprise system. But it's easy to forget the why of the free enterprise system. The reason I got into the movement in the first place, and I come from a liberal background in Seattle, Washington. You know, I didn't grow up with this, and nobody was in business. Nobody. I came to this because, believe it or not, poverty is the thing I care about the most. And when I started studying, I didn't go to college until I was in my late 20s. I got my bachelor's degree when I was 30. You know, so I have a very, a very strange story for somebody who later became a college professor. And, and when I was studying in my late 20s, I started studying economics for the first time, and it turned me into a political conservative because I found the solution to pulling people out of poverty through opportunity, which was free enterprise. But this is the key thing for us to remember. Free enterprise is the only system that can create a ton of billionaires, but I don't care. I don't care about creating billionaires. I want people to be able to earn their success and live lives of dignity. And the free enterprise system only matters because it, it understands, it helps us to understand and effectuate dignity, radical equality of dignity for people from all over the world and all races and all religions, doesn't matter, and potential to give them real, a real future. That's what matters. If we forget that, we become materialists. If we forget that capitalism wipes out poverty, then we, we're doing it wrong. Exactly right. And I think that was the, the, the rub there, that a lot, of, a lot of capitalists were disappointed in Solzhenitsyn's speech. I was, it changed my heart and my life hearing, and, and hearing of that speech. And in my first uh, election ever, I voted for Reagan, not because of Reagan, but because of Solzhenitsyn. And that may sound crazy, but uh, that's how it actually happened in my life. That's beautiful. I love that. Uh, and, and, and tell me this, Arthur. And by the way, it, it shows the ability, because I shared that all around my college, Fairleigh Dickens University. I even printed it in the gauntlet. I was editor-in-chief. And I can't tell you how many people were nodding, because it was talking about the human heart. Look, with the socialists and materialists and capitalists and materialists, how, where does the individual fit in? Where does his God, where does his meaning? And Arthur, you know, what I love about your work is you've been writing about this meeting and being needed uh, for a very long time. What are the public policies solutions for folks who are listening. What are some answers? What do you do to make people more needed? Well, to begin with, you have to have a focus on the individual. It's not the idea of the economy. It's what are we actually doing to lift up the individual? Socialism, you know, there's the old, there's the old uh, idea that social, a socialist is a man who loves humanity, but only in groups of one million and above. Right. 
basically. Well, you know, capitalism can be that way, too. It kind of falls in love with an idea. To make people needed means, okay, how is the system actually reaching out to make each individual person necessary? Number one, we've got to have an economy that stops getting in the way of people's earned success. You know, when we talk about taxes, taxes should really be all about creating more opportunity and not getting in the way of opportunity. Regulation, same deal. Entitlement, same deal. That's how we should be thinking about it. Second is we need an education system where we have choice and we have innovation, but most importantly, where we have vocational skills that we're working into our education system so that people can actually match their skills with their needs. And third, we've got to talk about culture. Right now, we have a culture where we just, we simply, you know, we leave people behind. We have a culture where we say, look, I'm taking care of poor people. I got food stamps. Isn't that enough? No, answer, not enough. We need a culture that sees people as necessary. Well, Arthur, thanks for your work. And we want to keep having you on to talk about these matters and, and particularly about happiness. Uh, thanks for joining us, Arthur, as always, and look forward to more work down the road. Thank you, Lee. Thanks for a great show. You bet. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And that was Arthur Brooks, the president of the American Enterprise Institute, talking about the things we care about most, human beings, their stories, their lives, and all of our search for meaning. More after these messages. stories and all month long we're telling adoption stories because they matter and because it's national adoption month and we love telling stories about love and there is no better way to love a child than to adopt a child and there's no better act of love uh, an act of selflessness actually than doing such a thing and that's why we focus on this all month long again national adoption month and today the story is brought to us by the great people at the Dave Thomas Foundation for Adoption, a group that sponsors specialized recruiters whose entire mission is to find forever families for kids in foster care that many deem, quote, unadoptable, unquote. And that's just such an awful word, unadoptable. It almost shouldn't be in the dictionary. And they brought us our next guest, Dee Marks, the adoptive mother of two special needs children. And Dee, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. I'm excited. And Dee, before we dig into uh, the, the the things you've done and the beautiful things you've done for these children, talk about your own childhood for a minute. Uh, my childhood was not so great. Um, I My mom married and divorced multiple times, so we had kind of like several stepfathers in the picture, um, and I never bonded with any of them. And so um, chaos would be the word that I used. Uh, my mom also, unfortunately, suffered from bipolar, um, which added to the mix of that chaos that we grew up in. And um, so I was very fortunate to uh, grow up with a, a good sense of self in spite of that and recognizing that other people, unfortunately, are going through that same situation and don't have as much confidence and don't have the ability to make the choice to leave that situation. 
And thankfully, I somehow had an inner strength that I was able to do that and move forward, you know, go to college, find a job, and be very independent and successful in a way, not financially, but in a way that I'm emotionally healthy. And that had to be hard in some ways, leaving siblings behind, didn't it, Dee? In some ways, yes. And there's actually, um, I have one sibling that I actually still have no contact with. And then my other siblings, I'm, I'm very close to. Um, in fact, when I adopted my daughter, Marina, is kind of when some of those bonds started to heal. Um, one of the things I don't think we've discussed is Marina was actually biologically a niece through a half-sister. And um, so when I adopted her, that was the family that she knew. And so it became imperative for me to let go of some of the hurt and the pain that I felt because that was that was what was needed for my daughter to feel that everybody loved her. And um, and so I'm thankful for that opportunity because we were able to heal a lot of bridges um, strictly through the relationship that I had built with my own daughter. And you wrote, and we got in our notes at least, that your mom felt so bad about herself that she found love wherever she could. And how's that... I, I, how has that impacted you in your, your life, uh, that experience watching your mom? Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. I think my mom just had low self-esteem and low confidence, and so um, she never felt good about herself, and so she was seeking that outside of her, um, you know, by the various men that she was involved with. For myself, I'm super cautious. <laughs> um, I have dated. I've been engaged once. Um, Came close to an engagement twice, but I'm super cautious. Uh, and to this day, I'm still single. Been dating a guy for two years now, um, and that's a great relationship. But obviously, I want to make sure that I'm involved with somebody for the right reasons. That it's because they add to my life; they aren't my life. There's a big difference. Um, and so, it takes a pretty unique man <laughs> to kind of fit the boundaries that I've put in. So absolutely, it does have an impact. Well, and, and but despite all that you experienced as a child, and it would have been completely understandable if you'd thought to yourself, adopt. I, I can't adopt. I don't know what a normal home is like. What would I know about raising children? I think something in you, uh, well, felt differently. Talk about that voice in your head that even thought this was a possibility in your life, something so beautiful. I, I think that comes back to that inner strength that I mentioned earlier, that um, there was just something in me that understood that this was not okay and this was not the way I wanted to live, and so I made a choice to live differently. But I also recognized that other kids don't always have that strength and they don't have those options, the options that I did. I have little guardian angels, as I call them, that really supported me throughout the way. Um that made a difference in keeping me forward moving. And some of these kids don't have that. Um, so I always loved kids. That that was just something I was in high school, voted most, like, most likely to get married and have the Brady Bunch. <laughs> so, so the kid theme was always a part of my life. I, I just have always been able to connect with them and um, be supportive of them and give them unconditional love. And so... But it was always going to be that literally I was going to get married and have children. And we kind of laugh about it because I was 29, and I had said to my to my mom at the time that when 
I turned 30. I was going through in vitro fertilization because I was having a child even though I wasn't married. And my mom in her face thought that that was wrong and said, oh, no, no, no. Well, sure enough, I adopted my daughter at I got her when she was tw- when I was 29 and a half, and the first comment back was, "Mom said, see, God had a different plan, you know." So, <laughs> um, and so He did have a different plan, and and um, and I'm thankful for that because not only did it rescue me in a way because I was ready to be a parent, but it also rescued my daughter, so it was a win-win. Um, it took her, took her out of an environment that wasn't safe for her physically or mentally, and put her in a home where she could truly grow. Um, and with someone who was really deeply in, 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 in longing to provide that home. And when we come back, we're going to continue to talk to Dee Marks, adoptive mother of two special needs children, including one she found through one of the Dave Thomas Foundation's Wendy's Wonderful Recruiters. It's National Adoption Month, and we are spending a lot of time as many nights as we can, telling these wonderful adoption stories. Hopefully, if you're listening, you'll imitate. You'll do it yourself. You got an empty room in your house? Fill it, for goodness sake. Fill it. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and we continue with Dee Marks. It's National Adoption Month. And Dee, where we left off, you were, you were called by your mom or challenged by your mom, and, and ultimately uh, you didn't have the in vitro. A, a baby, a child, not a baby actually, a child, came into your life. Tell us the story about Marina. Well, as I indicated, Marina was biologically a niece to a half-sister, and um, through extended family, kind of heard that there was some abuse going on. Um, there was drug and alcohol use by the, by the parents and things like that, um, which were very concerning to me. So we looked into it and found out that that was the case, and so um, I went to her home state because she didn't live in my state, and um, went to court to get custody. Uh, it was supposed to be a temporary situation, just to give time for the parents to do parenting classes, drug and alcohol rehab, and things like that. The goal initially was not for her to become my daughter, but for her to have a safe haven while her parents got the help that they needed. And um, unfortunately, a year went by. Neither parent moved forward on anything that they were supposed to do. And so at that point, my Marina started to experience some setbacks emotionally because her fear was that she was going to go back to them. And she was able to express that in therapy. And the therapist and I met, she said, I I think you need to make this a more permanent situation in order to let her know that she's going to stay with you for an extended period of time. And so we went back and we went to court and got permanent custody, custody of her. And, um, about a year later, she started to ask to be adopted. It was a unique situation because I had to remember that there's family involved here. This wasn't, you know, a child necessarily coming out of a foster care system who had no family. 
And so I said to her two things. I said, first of all, I want to wait until you're at least 12 years old because I, I want you to understand it changes your identity. You're no longer my niece. You'll be my daughter. You're no longer um, uh, certain roles within our family dynamics. Those are all going to change. So I want you to be cognitively aware of what those are. But second of all, I anticipated that the birth parents would fight me on that component, and I needed her to be at an age where a judge would listen to her side. I didn't want to take a chance of rocking a boat that might potentially tip over. And so she understood that. We processed that with her therapist. And when she turned 12, she's like, I still want to be adopted. And so I said, okay. And so we went right to court. Thankfully, neither parent did fight it. We met with the birth mom and talked to her about it. And my daughter's the one who actually said, this is what I want. She's the one when I'm sick. She's the one who's here. When I'm crying, she's the one who's here. She does everything that a mom does. And I want her to be my mom. And so I was very proud of her for being able to handle that. And then the birth father just basically chose to ignore that it ever happened. Um, he refused to show up at court and um, and everything. So the judge was very careful about how things were worded so that the birth father could never come back and disrupt the adoption. But a lot of it stemmed from my daughter in her own emotional confidence realizing that she how she felt differently here versus what she felt like when she was back in that previous home environment and recognizing that that was good for her and that she felt safe and she felt loved and that she wanted that on a permanent basis. Um, kudos, by the only, way, kudos to your stepsister, though, because what she did uh, and how she listened to her daughter, I think it had to be a very, very hard thing for her to do. It was. My mom was there because um, we didn't know how. You know, my half-sister was going to respond. Um, she had had tendencies to be violent in the past. She had had tendencies, um, you know, to cause problems. So it was a little terrifying to go into that meeting. And my mom was kind of there to kind of be a buffer <clears throat> because that's her daughter, too. And um, and it, we all, she said, my half-sister said, when we sat down, she, and Marina said what she said, she said, I kind of figured this was where it was going to go, um, that that's what you were going to ask me. Um, when you asked for this meeting. Um, so I think part of it was that. And then the other part of it was I said, as long as you keep your life clean, I'm not saying that you can't be a part of her life. I said, in many ways, being an aunt is a phenomenal thing. Yep. And you will now be an aunt to her, and we're not going to take that away unless you do something that's unsafe for my child. Now, what ended up happening is about a year later, she did get in trouble with the law again and was doing some things that my daughter wasn't comfortable with, and my daughter made the choice to stop the contact. So at this point, she's had no contact with her for many years unless we're at a family, because we're a family, we sometimes run into each other like at a funeral or a wedding or things like that, because obviously we all have a right to be there. Um, And it's very respectful, um, and it has to be, because that's what I want my daughter to see. Um, I pray all the time, and I've said this, to my daughter, that at some point, her and her birth mom can have a friendship. They'll never go back to being a mom and daughter, but they can have a friendship that's built upon trust. But it's, it's going to take years of healing. I understand that because I had to go through it with my own mom. It takes years to heal that kind of damage. And, um, 
And as my daughter grows and becomes more of an adult um, and trust her instincts better, um, I think one day it will happen. I'm already hearing from other family members that my half-sister is making some steps that are different. Um, and, and that's wonderful because my daughter needs to know that we all do what we do because we love her, um, which is sometimes hard, I'll be honest, um, to separate that because in some ways you're, you obviously do have a fear of what if she chooses to, you know, connect with the birth mom and then you lose her, but you have to understand that you're not going to lose her. You know, there's no, there's no way I'm going to lose her. Um, we're too well connected. We're too well bonded. Um, and for me to completely separate her from the birth mom, that's, that's a bad experience on me. That makes me look like I don't trust the situation. And that puts up a wall between my daughter and I. And so, we have conversations about this. We talk about where her birth mom is, you know, based on what I'm hearing from extended family and the things that she's doing, um, because it should always be open conversation. Yeah. And, and I, have, I hope that you're in the end, you know, hopefully she's learned that you have to pray. You have to pray for folks who are struggling yes. with drug addiction yes. and that they can change their lives and turn them around. And if that, that love and hope can be replaced with hate and, and bitterness, this changes the child's life too. Right. And I think for my daughter, even though she has a cognitive disability, she is functioning at a high enough level that she understood that she had to break away from that because her she has a sister, um, a half-sister, who went back to the birth mom and got involved with drugs, became promiscuous, had two children at a very young age, and I, I think she was cognitively aware enough to recognize that if you get into that environment, it's really easy to get sucked in permanently. And so she, she made the choice with, you know, with her therapist, not with me, but with her therapist and talking about it, to completely back away so she felt like she was on more solid ground. And I think as she, be, like I said, matures and becomes more of an adult, she'll, she'll feel that she's on that solid ground. And then at that point, Hopefully, the birth mom is also moving on with her life and continuing to heal on her side, and then I can see a friendship forming. You know, but like I said, it took it took years for my mom and I to get past our history, and it's going to take that for Marina, and we have to give her that. You have to give her the time and the space. And Marina was born, by the way, just so we can clear this up. She was born with fetal alcohol effects which led to cognitive disabilities. She could read something one day and not know it the next. She was never taught how to talk, and she was abused, which led her to act out angrily. She had night terrors. She'd been thrown up against the wall. Uh, This was, you know, for anybody listening, this isn't one of those on-the-border cases. Is someone taking a child out of a situation uh, in an unwarranted way. Uh, That's not the case here at all, Dee. Right, right. Oh, I would have that I would have never taken the steps that I had taken if I thought that help could have just come into the family and help them out. This was a situation where I felt like the help could only happen if we could remove the children so that they were safe during that process. You bet. You were an emergency responder to start. The intention was never to go long on this. It's just what ended up happening. You'd given the uh, parents the room and the space to be parents. 
and they just weren't about to become any soon, or one soon. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. National Adoption Month. We're celebrating it all month. And Dee Marks and the beautiful things she's been doing for children. We're going to talk about a few more stories. And sit tight. This is Lee Habib. Again, this is Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories. We continue our conversation with Dee Marks. And I know the audience is wondering, because I'm wondering too, how's Marina doing now? How old is she? What's she up to? Marina is doing fantastic. Um, It's been an incredible journey with her. We're very fortunate. We live in a school district that um, has high expectations for kids with disabilities. And then, of course, when you've got a mom mixed in that has high expectations, um, there would be no other outcome. So she... Uh, graduated from high school. She was able to ultimately take her regular classes with peers in in elementary school. She was pulled out a lot for extra support, and she still has cognitive delays. It's not that those have ever disappeared or will ever disappear, but we found a way of reaching her and teaching her in such a way that she was able to learn. So she did uh, go through high school and graduated Um, And then she participated, like, in a program called Project Search, which taught her employment skills because one of the things that I did a lot of research on is kids with disabilities, when they exit high school, oftentimes they really have a hard time finding a job because people are um, a little hesitant to hire somebody with a disability. So we felt that instead of her going on to college um, for an associate's degree, that we needed to focus on the employment piece first. And so that's what we did. Um, and now she's 24. She's working. We worked with a specialist who taught her how to drive to and from work. So she drives her own car. Um, so everything that a typical child would have as an opportunity, my daughter now has. Was it delayed? Yes. Most kids get their license at 16. My daughter got hers at 20. Um, most kids start working when they're 16, 17. My daughter started when she was 20. Um, but she has all of those same outcomes, and that, that I, I can't even express how proud I am because she had to work 10 times harder than anyone else that was supporting her, and she had that drive, and now she's doing it. So we still have a 529 for her, and the goal is for within the next year or two for her to go back and get an associate's vet tech degree. So, um, so we're still moving forward. Well, good for and you for pushing on the work front because – Far too many special needs kids don't ever get that chance to enter the workforce. It's a very terribly high number. And it, it, it takes special effort, love, and push uh, to not lower the bar because being, par- being connected to a workforce and working gives people pride and something to live for. And uh, congrats on the efforts to, to push that along, T. You, you also tried to get your daughter, a, I mean, your daughter, a sister in the end. You wanted to find her. <laughs> A baby sister. Talk about that effort and what it led to. Well, 
when Marina was a senior in high school, one of the things that we had talked about was in a lot of ways she had lost a piece of her family because she had, at that point, she wasn't talking to her birth sister or her birth mom. And, and she was in every sense of the word, kind of like an only child. And we, she and I had had multiple conversations, like, wouldn't it be cool to have a sister that you could share your room with and things like that? So, um, but I also felt very strongly that with Marina's needs and me being a single person, just one, I needed to make sure that Marina's needs were being met. And I didn't know that whether I could take another one on until her journey was semi-over. And so we waited until her senior year and then said, hey, all right, let's do this. It was a mutual decision. And so I decided to go through the adoption classes again and move forward with that process. Um, we had a few surprises along the way. First and foremost, when you go through the adoption classes, usually you have about a year to a year and a half wait before you're even contacted. Um, I was contacted within two weeks of finishing the class <laughs> because I said I would take a child with a disability. And, um, and more importantly, that first contact was actually the son, not daughter, that I ultimately ended up adopting. So, um, again, God intervened with his own little plan and uh, gave us the family that we were actually meant to be, which is beautiful. Well, his plan was to send you a boy with red hair. <laughs> yes. <laughs> if, if that had been a blonde-haired boy, you're right. I probably would have said, nah, I'm not even going to look at the file, but I don't know. I love red hair. Um, for years, I've colored my hair auburn because it's brown and I don't like it. Um, so red hair is just something that is, it's just a beautiful feature that I think of. And um, and so when they called me about this little boy, um, I said, did you read my file? I'm looking for a little girl, you know, preferably between the ages of 12 and 15 with a cognitive delay, you know, basically kind of saying, come on, this is, you haven't even hit any markers that I've looked for, <laughs> right. you know? Yep. And, um, and they were like, yeah, but, you know, we don't get too many parents who are willing to step up and say, hey, you know, I'd like to adopt a child with a disability, but more importantly, who I've already got that experience. And I also work in the field of disability, so I had a wide range of experience related to it. And I said, okay, tell me about this little boy. You know, still in my head, it's a sales tactic in my mind, you know. Okay, yep. they're going to try to sell me this kid, but you can say no and hang up at the end of the phone call. <laughs> yep. And um, and so they went on. They were like, okay, he's a little boy. He's got autism. You know, he's eight years old, and he's got red hair. Okay, I'll make it work. That was my comment. I'll yep, make it yep. work. I'll make it work. Um, By the way, 70% of special needs kids in foster care are never adopted. Absolutely. Oh, it's just yeah. it breaks your heart, you know. Well, tell me this. So you so you bring this redheaded boy into the home. What's forget you for a second. What's her reaction? What's your daughter's reaction to this? Oh, she was super excited. Um, CJ was infant, infantile in many many ways. Um, he was nonverbal. He wasn't potty trained, even though he was eight years old and things like that. So. She was excited because she was getting a sibling. She was excited because it was a sibling that she could take care of, you know, almost like that maternal instinct um, and everything. But that ended up not being, unfortunately, the reality. My, my son was very difficult to take care of and um, had RAD, reactive attachment disorder, which meant he didn't bond right away with people, if ever. You know, we're very fortunate he did bond with us. But um, 
So this lovey-dovey little brother that she was thinking she was getting, that was not the reality. And so we we did have to sit down and talk about that we have to meet him where he is. Um, so if he's not comfortable with hugging, then you can go up and pat him on the back and say, I love you, brother. You know what I mean? Um, because that's what I had to do back when she moved in with me. I had to meet her where she was. Um, and so some of that excitement wore off pretty quickly. Um, it never was that, oh, I wish we had gotten a sister, but it was, I don't have anything in common to do with him, right. you know, um, because he was so delayed. Um, my understanding through Children's Services is that he had never owned a toy before he moved into my house. The one caseworker came in and I had a bookcase, a small bookcase of like real chunky little, little kid toys. And she was like, you bought him toys. And I said, um, yeah, was I not supposed to? <laughs> I just thought that was such an odd statement. And she said, oh, he's never had toys because they've said that he's too rough with them. And I said, that's why you buy the chunky stuff and you teach him how to play with it. I mean, to me, some of the things that um, had happened, unfortunately, in his life um, were because people were not educated on how to move it forward or approach it. Whereas I said, no, we just buy the big Tonka stuff that's indestructible. And I teach him how to roll a truck across the floor. And I buy the Brio train sets and show him how to make a train set and how to roll that train across the bridge. Um, So because all of that had to be taught and it wasn't instinctive for him, like it tends to be for a lot of children, that became really hard for Marina to connect with because... She wanted to just play, not teach. Of course. But the good news is, you know, sometimes from these things bring great, great opportunity for kids. I mean, empathetic power gets developed. Leadership gets developed. A special understanding gets developed. When we come back, we're going to hear more about CJ and Marina and the story of Dee Marks and her beautiful family. This is National Adoption Month. We celebrate it all month long on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and we return with D. Marks. We're celebrating National Adoption Month, and now we're talking about that second child she adopted, CJ, whom she got through one of the Dave Thomas Foundation's Wendy's Wonderful Kids Recruiters. And kudos to the incredible work the Dave Thomas Foundation does, and it just shows you the power of philanthropic work the power of American business, the heart and soul of, uh, for my money, capitalism, because it was with this great success that Dave Thomas had that he wanted to give back. And, oh, my goodness, there is no better way to give back than listening to a story like this. Dee, what we were struck by during the break, almost like someone had kicked our entire staff. I'm looking at Faith and Stan and Alex and Jesse, and it's when you said this child had never had a toy, it was like a kick in the gut. 
just take us back to that again and what was going on and what did the what did the the folks with the experts explain that uh how did they explain that what did they attribute it to well there weren't necessarily experts but when i questioned the caseworker about it and she had indicated that he was too rough on the toys you have to remember that from the age of two on, this child lived in a foster care situation where the toys were not just his. The toys belonged to other kids that were in the foster home, whether they were biologically related to the parents or whether they were other foster children. And so um, she felt um, that since he was so damaging to the toys that the family felt they couldn't replace them for everybody else all the time. And so it was better just for him not to have access to them. And, um, and for me, when, when that, that was almost like a puzzle piece went into place, um, as to part of how much damage, for lack of a better word, that my child had experienced because if, if because of his behaviors, we're not giving him toys, we're also not taking him out into the community the way other kids by the time they're eight, those are experiences that every kid learn from and develop and grow. And my son at eight had not had those experiences. And that kind of, for the most part, shut down a lot of the growth that he potentially could have had because his behaviors were so much in the way of people feeling comfortable with exposing him to that outside world. Well, you gave a perfect example when that toy truck was put in front of him and you showed him what to do, this disabused the caseworkers of the fact that he had some kind of spatial problem or some kind of cognitive problem that he couldn't actually interact with a toy truck. Talk about that. Correct. Um, when, when I first got him and I gave him a truck, he flipped it upside down and he would just spin the wheels across, you know, with his fingertips. And at first, you know, the occupational therapist and, and even myself thought, that's a sensory thing. A lot of kids with autism have sensory things. I like to watch spinning things and things like that. But then when I actually bought a little floor rug that was shaped like a road map, and I put the truck down on there, and I'm like, okay, we've got to make the truck go to the store. Vroom, vroom, vroom. He immediately was able to replicate it, and then he never picked up the truck and spun the wheels again. He always played with it on the floor mat or on the floor or on the back deck or wherever we happened to be at. And so that was a very strong indication to me that this was not a sensory need um, because otherwise he still would have engaged in that. Um, he no longer engaged in it. He played appropriately with it. Now he was still rougher, you know. Um, it would crash into walls really hard <laughs> and stuff. But then you teach him, no, you know, we got to be gentle so that our toy can, you know, stay together because if it breaks, we can't use it. So all those things, we just had to step back. And we had to teach them the things that most people are taught, most kids are taught, between the ages of one and a half and two years old. Yep. Tell us a story um, about the first time, Dee, that you and CJ experienced pouring rain together. What happened and how did you address it? Um, no one had warned me that apparently my son had a very significant sensory issue to rain. Um and so I had no awareness of it, and we had gone in to go grocery shopping together. And um, we had just gotten to the point where CJ was no longer having to ride in the grocery cart but could hold on to the side of the grocery cart. 
And so he was holding on to the side. We come out to the parking lot, and it's pouring rain. And bless his little heart, he immediately went down to the ground in the parking lot and covered his head to protect himself. It was like a painful experience for him, and he was terrified. And so um, I, I, I can't control the rain. It's as simple as that. I can control whether he takes a bath or a shower and things like that, but I cannot control when it's going to rain. So I immediately, right then, said, we got to deal with this right now, right here. Um, and so we both held onto the cart, and I said, we're just going to walk. The rain doesn't hurt you. It's like getting a bath. It's just washing your body and making it clean. And they just kept saying that over and over in a soothing voice as we walked. And we walked for five minutes. And then we got in the car, and I, I said, is your body safe? And he, he said his body is safe because he talks third person. And, um, and I said, okay. I said, the water didn't hurt you. You can dry off. We'll dry off when we get home, when we get a towel. And so then every time we would be in rain, he didn't hit the ground, but he still would kind of crunch his shoulders up a little bit, you know. And, um, and then he started to learn to self-talk which was amazing, he would say to himself, that water doesn't hurt you. You're okay. It's like getting a bath. And so he used the same language that I used to calm himself. And now rain is still not his preference, um, but we don't have any issues if we actually have to walk in the rain. Um, And so I'm excited because these are the things that I just look at. And if someone had just taken a moment of time, one, it took me five minutes to process that with him in that parking lot that day. If someone had done that when he was three, that would have been one more thing that he would have been ahead on, and he would have been ready for the real world in a better sense of the word. You bet. And, um, and that's, that's the unfortunate thing, unfortunately, with foster care systems is oftentimes they don't have the training to know what to do in those situations, um, not that they don't want to help the child, but this child needed really unique, specialized care, and foster care was not prepared to handle that. And so things just didn't happen that should have happened to help my child grow. Yeah. Um, and yeah. that's why we've seen such amazing growth in the last five years that I've had him. That's beautiful. I mean, it's, it's, it's just beautiful, Dee, everything we're hearing. I know the audience is just... Is just being is moved. There are folks listening who are thinking about maybe adopting, uh, and hopefully, uh, after your story, they might lean more towards that that thought. You also run your own business, D. How do you do it as a single mom? And were there ever any moments where you questioned your decision to adopt? And do you still sometimes have doubts? Okay, I'll start with the beginning. I run my own business, and I started my own business so I could control my hours better to be more available for my kids. If you have a child with special needs, they have different and more frequent doctor's appointments. Um, They have sometimes issues at school that you immediately have to attend to um, and things like that. And so I very quickly realized that that was going to be the best fit for our family, for me to be able to provide for the family and yet still be available um, when I needed to be available. Um, so that's why I started running my own business. As far as doing it alone, I get asked that a lot. And I look back and I go, I don't think I'd do it any other way. <laughs> um, and part of it is because I got to make the decisions 
and we could just immediately move forward because I didn't have to have a discussion with somebody. And I think part of my kids advancing, both of them, was because we did have that sense of immediacy that we could move forward with. And, um, and also, I want my kids to see someone strong um, that supports them and that anyone can be a parent. If neither of my kids ever get married, I still want them to still know that they can choose to be a parent. Um, and a, and a really good one. So I don't have any regrets with that. Regrets with taking the children, um, right after I got both of them, because their disabilities were so extreme, there were times, yes, I went to bed and I cried. I would, I would go in and I'd say, I love you. Mommy loves you. Good night. Everything's, you know, in my voice, everything's fine. And I would shut their door and I'd go to my room and I'd cry because I would have self-doubt. What if I'm not the right person to help them through this? Um, what if this is how it is forever? What if we never get better than the point we're at? Um, with CJ, because he had rad, what if he never bonds with me? What if he's never able to accept a hug from his own mom? So, of course, I had doubts. Um, that being said, those doubts are kind of what motivated me the next day to get up and push a little harder because I wanted it to work. Um, I saw potential in both of my kids to be something that was further than what they were at that moment. And I recognize as a mom, that's my job, to step behind them and support them while they're moving through it and to catch them when they're falling. Um, and so part of it is you have to just kind of say, those doubts are normal. I don't think there's any mom out there in the world, whether they have special needs kids, adopted kids, or their own birth children, that has not gone to bed and doubted something you, about raising their you child. You bet. You bet. And, Dee, thanks for sharing that. Thanks for sharing your story. It's National Adoption Month, folks. There's no better way to show love than to adopt. And Dee Marks adopted two special needs children and one through the help of the folks at the Dave Thomas foundation wendy's wonderful kids recruiters what work you do thank you so much again d what a story about love about god's love this is our american story